Okay, all right, well, we're going to start our brand new series here today, First John, Live in the Light. I'll explain that title as we go along here, but, uh, and it looks like maybe Matt, you just, did you just bring in the notes? All right, great. I figured we'd be uh, interrupted by that at some point here, so if you need some of the note papers, there are uh, some right there, an outline you can fill in, and also you can go to the, if you use the Home Church app, you can go to the sermon notes section and get the, fill in the blanks there as well. All right, so as, you, as they're passing those out, I'm going to ask you a question here this morning. What would it take, what would it take to get you to give up everything and follow Jesus and wherever he might lead you? If Jesus asked you to give up money, house, if, he, if Jesus asked you to give up a career, if Jesus asked you to give up your creature comforts, if he, Jesus asked you to give, give up your future ambitions, if Jesus asked you to give up family closeness, if Jesus asked you to give all that up just to follow him, would you do it? Those are some faith-testing questions right there. But there was a young fisherman whose name was John who did that exact thing as a young man. Matthew chapter 4, if you want to go there, you can. I'll have it up here. We're going to look at these verses. Matthew 4, verses 21 and 22. These verses amaze me. This is Jesus now. And going on from thence, he, Jesus, saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. They left their business. They left their future ambitions. They left their career. They left all the dreams, the things that they had been thinking about. They left their family, closeness. They left everything to follow Jesus. John, a fisherman. He was just a fisherman. And they say that he was probably the youngest of the disciples of Jesus at this time. He was about 20 years old, they think. He became known over time as the apostle of love. He spoke of love often. But do you know that he had just as many references to truth? At one point, Jesus called John and James, both of these guys, the, these two brothers. He, he, uh, he gave them a nickname. Jesus called them sons of thunder. We don't know exactly why Jesus said that, but we do know one story about the two of them. They were following Jesus and they passed through a certain area and certain people ignored Jesus in this town. So as they left town, James and John said, Jesus, we have an idea. We would like to call down fire on these, this town right here and just wipe them all out. The way they treated you, I don't like it. Let's kill them. And uh, so we don't know exactly why Jesus called them sons of thunder, but that could be that reason right there. From what we can tell about John in the scripture, the most we can get out of, about his personality and who he was, he was passionate, a very passionate individual about truth and very passionate about love. What an excellent combination for a Christian. Passionate about truth and passionate about love. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three epistles or letters. 
and he wrote the book of Revelation. We're going to study the first of his letters to the church, 1 John. And he wrote this when he was up there in years. John was probably about 80 years old, they, they say, when he wrote the book of 1 John. Scholars tell us that 1 John has all the earmarks of John's age and apostolic authority. In other words, this book is filled with experience. It's filled with straightforwardness. A man who's been in the ministry a very long time and doesn't have time for fluff. <laughs> Let's just get to the point. Here's the deal. An older man, it's just, he's, he knows his time is short. Let's just say it like it is. But also that sense of authority. I'm not going to spend time uh, trying to back up or booster who I am. I'm just going to tell you, everybody knows the Apostle John. And I'm just going to say it like it is. By this time in John's life, there's a few things I want to mention. By this time in John's life, he could have been the last living personal connection to Jesus. He was the last of the disciples to die. And so he had evangelized for, uh, for about 60 years. He started churches. Before he was living in D Jerusalem, but before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, he moved to Ephesus, which was in a different country. He remained a faithful pastor there in Ephesus, now, which is now Turkey. He remained a faithful pastor there for many years. At one point, though, he was exiled from Ephesus and sent to the island of Patmos. And while he was on Patmos, God gave him this vision that became the book of Revelation. And eventually he was allowed to go back, return to Ephesus, keep pastoring there, and he died of old age at about 90 years old or so, the best we know. But during his years in Ephesus, uh, that town, that city, was a large, thriving port city. I want to set this whole stage because this is going to be very important for us as we launch into this book to know the mindset and the backdrop for what this, where this book comes from. In Ephesus at the time that he was pastoring, it was famous for this temple of Artemis or temple of Diana, the goddess. There was a lot of wickedness in this place. People would come, again, it's a port city. People are coming from all over the world. Uh, their ships are docking in Ephesus, and they're getting off the ships, a bunch of sailors looking for a good time. And they came far and wide to worship in this temple of Diana. They would do so by paying for temple prostitutes, and then they would worship. Ephesus was known then, I mean, money was flowing into this place, into this town, and it was known for its enormous prosperity and depravity. Actually, Elaine and I were able to visit the ruins of Ephesus on our tour in that area. And as we walked through those well-preserved ruins, we came to this large library. Just as, again, just to kind of set up what this place was like. There's, these are the ruins of the library. This was a place where the elite of the city would gather and discuss things and... and uh, and have their, their, open their scrolls and read things, and political people would be there. Well, across the street from the library is a brothel. And our tour guide that was showing us through this area here, he said, now, when they were digging and when they were looking at things here, they discovered a secret tunnel underneath the ground from the library to the brothel. That just tells you, what, again, what kind of place Ephesus was. We saw this uh, little uh, advertisement carved into the street. 
It's actually right before you get to the brothel. Here's what it means. The T-shape is for at the, at the cross, or the, the, the crosswalk. Uh, there's heart, love, meaning a prostitute. At the, you're going to turn left at the cross street, and there's a pretty girl there. They would carve that. It's like, a, it's like imagine us driving down the road and seeing a billboard that says a brothel. Turn right. You know, um, that's the kind of environment that Ephesus was. And by the way, it's completely in ruins now. I think that should be an example for America. That's our, that's our future. If we keep going down the road we're in right now. So John, think about it. John, Pastor John had an uphill battle. He had an uphill battle pastoring in this t- type of environment, this community. But morality wasn't the only issue John was dealing with. The religious landscape of Ephesus was a complete joke. There was just willy-nilly acceptance of any and all religious thought. Um, in fact, not just acceptance, but encouragement. If you have a belief, share it. We'd love to hear it. If you have a thought, share it. We'd love to hear it. And all, everything goes. All religions are equal. You know, the Greeks loved any new idea. That's, remember that Paul, he's talked about that. You guys, you, don't, you have gods for everything. You even have a god called the unknown god. It's insane. And it was especially fun for the Greeks, especially at this time, to actually blend religions. They, they wanted to bring this one, a little piece of this one, a little piece of this one, and then create new ones. This was a time of creating new religions. And as long as you didn't say anything bad about the Romans and the Roman government and all that, you could believe whatever you wanted to believe, and it was fully accepted. So, but you could see now why God would want John to be in a place like this. He would want a strong believer. He would want a man of God to be right in the middle of those wolves, a sheep among wolves. Because many people are traveling from, to Ephesus from all over the world. And he would be right there. It's a great place to reach people who would then take the gospel to their part of the world and their part of the world and their part of the world and their part of the world. It was a perfect location for him to have a church. So there was many great things that God was doing there in Ephesus. But there were also many, many adversaries. Reminds me so much of today. The adversaries are just more and more growing. But at the same time, there's such a good, uh, this is a good moment. To reach people. There's, this is a serious moment. And especially as there's a, uh, there's a groundswell of young people who are saying we don't have any religion. The nuns, as we called them. Uh, when they would check the box on a religion, none. I have no religion. And that's a growing number. So as these people get older, they're going to need something. They're going to be looking for something when that comes to a dead end. So the opportunities are good, but there's a ton of adversaries. It's, it's one thing to deal with adversaries outside the church, and that's what certainly John had to deal with. But there's also, John then started to have to deal with adversaries in the church. And this is where it gets ugly. The church started to get infected by the world's pleasures and the world's philosophies. And there was one very deceptive false teaching that started to gain popularity. And it was called Gnosticism. You might have heard of it before, but it was a blend of Christianity and other religious and secular thoughts. And the pressure from the world on the church to compromise was very strong in those days. 
And some people in the church just couldn't take that pressure. It was just too much. There's so much pleasure all around. And it was drawing them. There's so many other philosophies. And people were looking down on the belief, the simple belief in the gospel, the simple belief in Jesus, was just looked down upon. You know, and every generation has its battles. We have ours too. In America, it does seem, and it does feel like, and I think you'd agree with me, that we're at a tipping point right now. Maybe we've already tipped too far. And there is this great push to remove anything biblical from our culture. I mean, it is huge. No traditional marriage. No nuclear family. No traditional roles of mother and father. No moral absolutes. No hell. No judgment. They have sold people, especially young people, that by, if we remove these concepts, if we remove these whole ideas that come from the Word of God, we'll actually have a, more, a better society. It'll be a better place to live. And for them, then, it's actually a moral good to get rid of those things. It would actually be so much better for everybody if we erased all those things that divide us. So you can see for them, we're going to build this utopia. Uh, The problem is now that many churches and Christians are being seduced. And they're thinking that same exact way. And so now we're going to start erasing some of the things out of the Bible. But John, in his day, saw all those things, he, those very same concept, maybe wrapped in a different package, slightly, but he would not have it. He would not have that. And neither should we. And this is why studying 1 John is going to be very, very helpful for us. We need to take our cues from this amazing apostle. He writes in the middle of this kind of environment. So here's Pastor John. He's been serving Jesus all these years. 60 years he's been serving the Lord, pastoring, leading people to the Lord, staying true to the faith, encouraging the saints. And now these knuckleheaded pontificators in the church, these people that with all their arrogance, thinking that, you know, this is great new thought. I want to share with you this. I want to share with you this. I want to share with you this. We got this new idea. And they start spreading it among the members. And, and this is what they're spreading. Gnosticism. Gnosis. It comes from the word gnosis, which is Greek, which is where we get our word knowledge. The idea is that uh, you get a special knowledge or you get enlightened to what really, truly uh, is true out there. It was a blend of Judaism, Eastern religions, Plato's philosophy, and Christianity. It's kind of, they just kind of mixed it all in one bowl, and here's where it came out as. The fundamental belief was this, that the physical world was evil and the spiritual world was good. There's two worlds, the physical and the spiritual. The physical is bad and evil. Matter is evil Spiritual is all good. Now, I'm going to share with you quickly how they came to those conclusions. And so follow me if you can here. Here's their theology. They believe that there was one God who was good and perfect, but he was unknowable. You couldn't know this God. But there's another God. He was a lesser God than this other God, lesser power, but he still was a God. But he, and he was the one who created. Now, when he created... He messed up during creation. And he made this an evil world. 
So therefore, everything that he created on this earth is just evil because he just screwed everything up. Well, then that leads to their, their thought about man. When this God was creating man, he accidentally gave man, though, a spark of that first God's spirit. So inside that man, he is inherently good. He has an inherently good soul in there somewhere, but it's trapped inside this evil material body. And by the way, John deals with this concept immediately right in the first chapter of 1 John. And we're going to see that next week. But this is, so you're, you're, a, you're an inherently good person. You have that spark of God's spirit. You just have to find it. You just have to be enlightened. You have to have the knowledge so you can look within and find the good that's within. And that's then how you can be rescued, how you can be saved. To be rescued, all you need to do, examine your inner spark, find the knowledge or that gnosis, and then you can free yourself from the material body. In essence, salvation is found within yourself, not without yourself, or not outside yourself. This is in complete contrast to what the Word of God says. Salvation is only from without, and it comes then into us through Jesus Christ. Now, having this knowledge, as I mentioned here, caused them to arrogantly see themselves as the enlightened ones, and those who didn't believe this were ignorant. So now we're creating a big division. We are enlightened. We know things. You don't. Again, what we see in 1 John is that he talks a lot about love, love for the brethren. What this concept does is creates a division between the brethren instead of bringing the brethren together. And there is no love in that. If you don't know something, I know something, you're down here, I'm up here, there's no love. What, here's what they believe about morality, if you believe in this Gnostic philosophy. They believe you can do whatever you want in the body because it has no bearing on the spirit. If there's two separate worlds, then everything you do on the body has no bearing at all on the spirit world. It's good. This is evil. It's always going to be evil. This is always going to be good. So you could do whatever you want down here. It really doesn't matter. And now I think we see the core of why they want to believe this. You can do whatever you want. Choose your God, which is what people do. Have you ever noticed the gods that people choose look a lot like them? You know, my God would, would say this, you know, to me, God would allow me to do this. To me, God would be like this. That sounds a lot like you. <laughs> Gnostics, then, the concept is, and this is, you know, Buddhists and other things, they, a lot of similarities here. You either live like monks, and you're going to deny all the physical things and, uh, you know, uh, discipline yourself, or the other way is to live like libertines and basically just throw off all restraint and do whatever you want, and it does not matter. Those are really the two ways that Gnostics would live, the Stoics, the Epicureans, that kind of concept. And then their Christology, meaning what do they believe about Christ? Well, since all matter is evil, then Jesus didn't have a physical body. Jesus is good. Jesus is righteous. So therefore, Jesus didn't really have a physical body, it was just something that was something you saw, but it wasn't real. And John talks about that in the first chapter and in the fourth chapter of 1 John. And some actually taught that the Christ spirit descended on Jesus. So there was another group of the Gnostics that said, well, actually what happened was Jesus was born with a real body, 
But then when he got baptized, the Christ spirit descended on him and in him. And then it took him all the way until the crucifixion. And then the Christ spirit left and then the body died and all of that. And there's a sort of, it looks like a reference to this concept in 1 John 5, 6. We'll get to that in the next few weeks as well. Now, the reason this is so uh, horrible and such a wicked belief is because it undermines completely the atonement of Christ. If Jesus is not truly man, then he cannot die in man's place. And this is deadly, deadly religion. This whole concept just completely destroys Christianity. It destroys everything about God, and it destroys the truth. So that is the context, part of the context for John's letter. Like any good pastor, John had to respond to this threat in, in the church, and this threat to the faith. Now, it looks like there actually probably was a strong contingent of people who started to believe this. And a matter of fact, in the future years that came, unfortunately, in the second and third century, Gnosticism had a huge rise. We get those, you've heard of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the book of Thomas and all these other things. It's just, it's, just complete, uh, it's just complete farce, but it's all built on these concepts. And so uh, there was a strong contingent beginning already in the church in that first century. They were seducing people. It says in chapter 2, it almost looks like those people, they were, uh, were talking to each other and there was a split in the church. And th- these people left. John very clearly talks about those who left. And they left believing these doctrines. In verse 26 of chapter 2, he says they were seducing people. And I'm sure the whole church had gotten an earful with all these secret in-house meetings about this. And uh, going against the teaching of what John was uh, trying to preach. And which proves, again, that these folks were not loving the brethren as they should have. And John had to call it out. And help everybody to see the truth. Now, he, he nails a lot of this stuff pretty hard. But I will say this. As you go through the book of 1 John, he's not going to spend a lot of time breaking down each one of their beliefs. And giving, you know, a bullet point answers to each and every point of their belief. That's not John's style. That's not what he was uh, writing the, the, the book to do, really. Instead, he was, again, he was an old apostle. He's been around a long time. He's seen all of it. And he wants to help people keep their minds on what's true. Forget about this garbage. He'll throw his, his jabs in there against those things. But just, just forget about all that. Let's focus on the truth. The truth that will guard us from this heresy and from the next wave of stupidity that comes along that threatens the church. Because John knows this is not the last one. There's going to be something else. And so we need to have an understanding of what's true. He wants people to understand and fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Think about it. John, is he's the last remaining personal connection to Jesus. All the other disciples had died. John was there. He's an older man. He's the last one. And people are looking to him for for answers. And he wants to help them fall in love with Jesus, which is the absolute best way to guard anybody from false teaching. And that's what we've called this uh, series, Live in the Light. Live in that light. 
That's what John does in this letter. He keeps going, he keeps cycling through the essential truths of Christianity is what we're going to see. The essential truths of Christianity as we go through 1 John will begin to get deeper. They'll begin to get broader. And the more we start to grasp them, then the more strengthened we are to face any philosophy that comes along. He really wanted these church members that he had to have a deep assurance of their salvation in Jesus. Know that you're saved. Know why you're saved. Know how you're saved. And then you won't listen to these ridiculous seducers that are making you doubt everything. So here are the four things that he keeps building on in his epistle. Let me show you. The four central themes that are going to start to be unwrapped in 1 John. And notice how these things uh, do combat Gnosticism. Number one, the identity of Jesus. He's going to talk a lot about that. And of course, that was a big issue for Gnostics. Who is Jesus? And they had their concepts. But John's going to tell us the truth. And then the reality of sin. The Gnostics believe we have no sin. What What does God say about that? Number three, God's provision for forgiveness. The the Gnostics effectively denied the atonement. And so what is and how do we get forgiveness? And then maintaining fellowship with God and others. The, The Gnostics had zero love for God. Zero love for their brothers. The Gnostic philosophy and religion is self-focused. It's all about me. It all comes back to me. What I want, what I desire. The false teachers had really confused people. They claimed to be Christians, but their teachings were totally different from true Christian doctrine. And their behavior was also way off. The the ways they lived didn't match up to the, the things that God had commanded in Scripture. And so people were trying, well, I mean, okay, some of your stuff sounds good, but the way you're living and... And I'm trying to decipher all this and figure it out. And John wants to clear, just cut right through that. <clears throat> People were wondering, what then makes a true Christian? How do I know if I'm even saved? What are those things that I need that will help me understand I am a saved person? So John really gets pastoral. He, he gets like a pastor here. And he wants to help people understand what true Christianity will look like in a life. Here's what emerges. There's three distinguishing marks of a Christian that, that we begin to see in 1 John. There's, first of all, the theological mark. And that is the belief that Jesus was truly the Son of God in the flesh. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you will believe that Jesus was truly the Son of God in the flesh. And John's going to help that come to the surface for us. And then the next one is the moral mark. If you are a Christian, there will be a desire and a, there will be a consistent obedience to the commandments of God. Not perfection, but a consistent obedience. And then number three, there will be a social mark in your life. And that will be a love. A love for God and a love for one another. And that love for one another will especially be visible to people. And it will be visible to you. If you're a believer, you will just automatically have a love for other believers. And there would just be something there. Now, let me be very clear. God does not put these in here in the book of 1 John. God told everything 
to John. God told John what to write here. But God does not put these in here as ways. These are not ways to become a Christian. No, these are things that are already true of a Christian. If you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, these things will begin to emerge and these will be the marks in your life. John really wrote this letter to the believers, to Christians, to help them build, be built up, to build up these true believers. Like a loving grandfather writing a, writing a letter to his grandkids. I want to help you understand some important things, kids, before you run off in some weird direction. I want to help you understand what a true Christian is. I want to help you understand what true doctrine is. I want you to be uh, focused on what's true. And he even gives four purpose statements in this letter. I kind of want to leave you with this. These, there's actually, John puts right into the letter uh, four times, he says why he writes the letter. So let's look at those. Number one, to make our joy complete. To make our joy complete. Look what he says in 1 John 1, 4. In these things write we unto you that your joy might be full. Ultimately, the end of this whole thing, God wants us joyful in Jesus. He wants us to live lives of joy that are just filled, thinking about Christ and, and a walking with Christ. And so how do we get joy? We do that by being sure that we're sure. Being sure that we're sure will bring joy in our lives. If we're sure that we're sure of certain key truths, there will just automatically start to bubble joy in our hearts and we'll be settled. Not only that, but to warn us about habitual sin. Look at what he says in 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the verse that my dad mentioned just a few moments ago. What a sweet verse. If you want to give, listen, if you want to give someone a gift, teach them how to deal with sin. If you want to give your children a gift, teach them how to deal with sin. That's what John wanted to do. He wanted to give us this amazing gift that will last our whole life. How do I deal with the sin that I'm facing every single day? How do I deal with that? First John discusses that and then to refute false teachers this is another reason a purpose that he wrote this book these things have i written unto you concerning them that seduce you it breaks a parent's heart when they see a children their children being seduced and john had to warn his children his children in the lord John, he's an older man, but he never lost his passion for truth. He's going to nail these seducers. I mean, he he put it right out there. Those people are seducing you. And then lastly, to assure us of our salvation. Famous verse in 1 John, it's in chapter 5. The amazing verse, verse 13. These things have I written unto you. That believe. That's important here for this whole book. Uh, the book. The Gospel of John, he talks about writing it for those who don't believe. And he wrote that so that they would believe. First John, the epistle is different. These things I write unto you that already believe on the name of the Son of God. So this book is to Christians. That ye may know 
that you have eternal life. And that you may believe on the name. I mean truly believe. Be sure that you're sure on the name of the Son of God. This letter is written to believers. It's a family letter. Uh, This is not to unbelievers. It speaks about the Father a lot, our, our Father. It speaks about loving one another, meaning we're all in a family. It deals with family issues, brethren, loving the brethren. So it deals with family issues. (laughs) Therefore, when you see things about sin in this book, remember this. Remember that it's about fellowship and not sonship. It's not about making sure you remain a child of God. It's about making sure you keep in fellowship with God. You're already part of the family. So when he talks about sin, he's not saying, you're going to lose this salvation. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, 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 no. You might lose your fellowship with God. And I don't want you to lose that. So when you sin, it's a family issue. When we sin, it's a family issue that needs to be dealt with in a family way. He wants all his children to be sure they're in the family. And they have that confidence. I'm going to share with you this story and then we're done. There was an elderly man. He came to the great pastor of late great pastor uh, Ironside, H.A. Ironside. And he said this, he said, Pastor, I will not go on unless I know I'm saved or else I know that, it, or that it's hopeless to seek to be sure of it. I want a definite witness, something I, can, I can't be mistaken about. And Pastor Ironside, here's how he replied. He said, suppose you had a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven, would that be enough to rest on for you? Yes, I think that would, he said. An angel. If I heard from an angel, that would be be good. Then Ironside continued, but suppose then on your deathbed, Satan came and said to you, I was that angel, transformed to deceive you. What would you say? The man then was speechless. He didn't know what to say. Ironside then told him that God has given him something more dependable than the voice of an angel. He has given his son to die in your place and for your sins. And he has testified in his own word that anyone who trusts in him will have all of their sins gone. In fact, he then quoted 1 John 5.13. For those of you that believe that you may know that you have eternal life, that you believe on the name of the Son of God. It's a letter from heaven telling you that you can know and that you should know. And that day, that verse, that passage brought such an assurance to that man's heart. It is by the word of God, it is by what Jesus has done that I can know for sure that I am in the family of God. First John is this powerful book that lays it out for us. It's going to be an exciting book as we dig into its treasures. It really helps us gain a confidence and then that joy that he talked about, that joy that's full, the joy that's contagious and wisdom in how to deal with the false teaching that's around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.